Hi there, Jordy. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Did you have any trouble getting into the um getting into the meeting or no? I didn't. So I okay. was just about to um email you. We actually had an incident here last night. We had um oh. Oh, wow. our local library was um defaced with swastikas. So oh, I'm so yeah, I am so sorry to have to do this, but if we could speak next week, I'm just underwater right now again. Yeah, um, no problem. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I just, uh, no, my it's day okay. has been kind of taken completely off course by this. That's Jordy Gerson. She's the rabbi at Greenwich Reform Synagogue in Connecticut. When I called her for our interview, she was in the midst of dealing with yet another troubling issue facing her community. The night before, someone had spray-painted swastikas on a neighboring synagogue, fraying the nerves of an already distressed community still very much reeling from the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in October 2018. For Jordi and her community, though, and for millions of religious minorities in the United States and across the world, this harassment and violence is an unfortunate yet all-too-familiar reality. In November of 2018, the FBI released its report on hate crimes in the U.S. for 2017. It wasn't good news. Hate crimes on the basis of religious identity surged 23%, the biggest annual increase since 2001, the year of the 9-11 terror attacks. And one of the most startling statistics is that the number of hate crimes targeting Jewish people, that increased 37% from the previous year. Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, said the report, quote, provides further evidence that more must be done to address the divisive climate of hate in America. That begins with leaders from all walks of life and from all sectors of society forcefully condemning anti-Semitism, bigotry, and hate whenever it occurs, end quote. So why are hate crimes on the rise? Many have placed blame at the foot of political leaders and specifically President Trump for emboldening anti-Semites and white supremacists, very fine people he's called them. But yet there's another equally troubling side to the story, one that calls into question the validity of the FBI's own hate crime statistics and gives us more questions than answers. I'm Jonathan Beasley, and this is the Harvard Religion Beat, a podcast examining religions underestimated and often misunderstood role in society. My first guest today is Rabbi Jordi Gerson, who you heard from at the beginning of the show. I wanted to talk to her about how hate crimes have impacted her local community and what she feels are some of the driving forces in the surge of anti-Semitism in the U.S. today. So Jordi, it seems as though we're living in a time in which people feel, perhaps more so than ever, liberated to express hatred, sometimes with violent consequences. Do you feel that's due in part to the rhetoric coming from President Trump, who has been particularly outspoken against immigrants and Muslims? Oh, absolutely. I think there were things that were not said in polite society mm. um, anymore. They'd become passe. They'd become taboo. And Trump, because he is willing to, you know, basically tolerate this kind of rhetoric, and in some cases even, um, I would say, encourage this kind of rhetoric, has opened the floodgates for racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-LGBTQ, anti-special needs, like misogyny. I mean, there are things that I think none of us ever imagined would be said in the public square that have now become kind of, um, you know, par for the course. 
And I think, you know, I think the other piece of that is that the internet has, you know, for all of the good that the, you know, social media and the internet has done, it has also created spaces for this kind of rhetoric and communities for people who, you know, um, who may not have been able to find allies in their bigotry or their hatred or their hate speech. And now, you know, that's a real, that's a real question for democracy and free speech, right? Um, not just for Facebook, but across across the internet. So in your role as a religious and spiritual leader in your community, following events like either a mass shooting or the defacing of a house of worship, what are the biggest challenges that, that you face? I think, you know, um, I think one of them is, is just managing the anxiety of our congregations and thinking through spiritually what it means to be in this state, you know, to be scared. Um, what does it mean to, you know, that, that showing up for services used to be a spiritual statement or a religious statement, and now it's become a statement of solidarity. What does that mean? Just looking ahead, what are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night? So the first thing that I'm worried about is the most obvious. I'm just worried about security. I'm worried mm -hmm. about Frankly, I'm worried about gun control, not just for the Jewish community, but all over the country right now. I mean, Thousand Oaks was a, a week after Pittsburgh. Um, but I'm worried about a new reality where to be in a sanctuary um, or to be, frankly, in a mosque requires, you know, that you have armed guards, requires that the rabbi or the imam or the pastor has, you know, and we saw this in Charleston, is wearing a panic button. That is not... That, that is not an America I ever thought I would be living in. So that is, you know, that keeps me up at night. In 1990, the Hate Crime Statistics Act began requiring the Justice Department to compile data on, quote, crimes that manifest evidence of prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, or ethnicity, end quote. Here's then-President George Herbert Walker Bush speaking about the new act. One of the greatest obligations of this administration and of the Department of Justice is the guarantee of civil rights for all Americans. Hate crimes cannot be tolerated in a free society. Now, the job of collecting and compiling those hate crime stats falls to the FBI. And the FBI depends on law enforcement agencies across the country to submit their own hate crime figures so that the FBI can put together its annual report. The only problem with that data? It's pretty unreliable. Here's CBS security analyst Ron Hosko. But what I think what's uh, worth noting here is what's missing. So about, uh, I think, 11% or 12% of the law enforcement agencies are reporting hate crimes. So that tells us that somewhere around 88% of law enforcement is reporting that they had zero hate crimes. I think there's a huge gap there. I think there are lots of other hate crimes that are not reported, where the victim simply chooses not to report, uh, where law enforcement doesn't believe it's a hate crime and they don't provide that information to the FBI. I suspect there's a huge gap here in what's being unreported to the FBI, even though we're seeing a rather substantial increase in the total number of uh, reported crimes. So one of the big reasons for the underreporting is that many victims of hate crimes don't report the incident, whether due to fear of deportation if they are undocumented or, for LGBTQ folks, 
distrust that law enforcement will take their claims seriously. And that's been a big issue for a number of years. Also contributing to the unreliability of the FBI's numbers is that submitting hate crime data is completely voluntary. And many law enforcement agencies opt not to participate in the FBI's hate crime program. According to the Anti-Defamation League, at least 91 cities in the U.S. with populations over 100,000 people either didn't report data to the FBI or they simply reported zero hate crimes. Now, encouragingly, the number of agencies that submitted incident reports in 2017 rose 6%, and this would account in some way to the increase in overall hate crime numbers. But it's not just the unreliability in which agencies do and don't report hate crimes that's an issue. It's the confusion between communities, counties, and even states as to what even constitutes a hate crime. For example, while 45 states have laws that criminalize bias-motivated violence or harassment, the hate crime laws in 14 of those states don't include either sexual orientation or gender identity. Even more alarming is that four states, Arkansas, Georgia, South Carolina, and Wyoming, have no hate crime laws at all. My home state of Indiana recently passed what many consider to be an extremely watered-down version of a hate bill, since it doesn't include protections for gender identity, race, or sexual orientation. And for the latest FBI report, some of the most chilling hate crimes that occurred across the country were left out. The killing of Srinavas Kuchabotla in Kansas by a man yelling, get out of my country, and terrorist. The death of Heather Hare by a white supremacist in Charlottesville. And the Portland Max train attack, when a man fatally stabbed two people after he was confronted for harassing teenage girls and shouting racist and anti-Muslim slurs. Not one of these high-profile hate crimes were recorded in the latest FBI report. I spoke earlier about the rise in hate crimes against Jewish people, but they're certainly not the only religious minority group being targeted. Since the 2016 election, there's been a 64% increase in violence against Sikhs, Muslims, Arabs, and other South Asians. In an interview with the BBC, Ahmed Rahab of the Council on American-Islamic Relations says that some political leaders have stoked the fears of white supremacists. Unfortunately, um, one cannot discount the rise in the sort of speech coming from political officials, especially the president of the United States, that tends to stoke um, racial sentiments. And what we've seen is an emboldening of those Americans who believe that America belongs to white Christians, that it is not set by its values and its promise, but rather by a particular race and religion. And so those who are in the minority in regards to race and religion and sexual orientation have felt the wrath of, of some of these people. Simran Jeet Singh is a senior religion fellow at the Sikh Coalition and a scholar based at NYU Center for Religion and Media. He spoke to me about the idea of privilege and the emboldening of white supremacists. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that our society is starting uh, to grapple with in a way that I haven't seen us grapple with before um, is, the, is the idea of, of supremacies um, and the ideas of privilege and power that come with those supremacies. And so um, I think these things have always been there historically in America um, in different aspects and parts of the world as well. Um, I, think, I think the complication now is that as folks come forward um, and, and call that out, um, there, there is a real moral reckoning that, that we're seeing across our country. And so, so the tough thing, I think, as, as we look around is, is how do we actually have these conversations where we talk about um, 
you know, white privilege or male privilege or Christian privilege uh, in a way that's productive. I think that's, that's the question that I'm really interested in asking. I think all those things are real. Um, I have no doubt about that, but I, I, I think the question for me is how do we, how do we deal with them now that we know that they're there? 50 Muslims shot down in New Zealand, six more murdered at the Islamic Cultural Center in Quebec City, 11 Jews killed in Pittsburgh, nine African-Americans shot dead in Charleston. These are just a few of the more recent attacks by white supremacists that were driven by a deep-seated fear that white Christians across the globe will soon become a minority population. In the U.S. in particular, we've seen a surge in violence by white supremacists. According to the Anti-Defamation League, ideologically motivated extremists killed at least 50 people in the U.S. last year, and all but one of those murders had at least some links to right-wing extremism. As a result, many people believe that, while President Trump doesn't deserve blame for any specific attack, he does deserve some of the responsibility for the increase in white nationalist violence. In an interview on NPR, sociology professor Peter Simi said that, given the inflammatory nature of the president's remarks, not to mention his repeating of them, it's no wonder violence committed by white supremacists is on the rise. When you have a president who's endorsing those ideas and, and using that kind of language, it uh, does send the message that, hey, you know, this is um, not only permissible, it's encouraged. But it's not just the U.S. that's seeing a rise in violence by white nationalists. Across Europe and beyond, a number of countries have seen their governments take a turn to the far right. Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, has said that, quote, Without the protection of our Christian culture, we will lose Europe, and Europe will no longer belong to Europeans. This rhetoric echoes the sentiments of white nationalists, who feel their way of life is under threat from immigrants or ethnic and religious minorities. Even more troubling is that, in the wake of some recent acts of domestic terrorism, some far-right politicians have doubled down on white nationalist rhetoric and placed blame on victims. After the recent massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, Australian Senator Fraser Anning said that, quote, the real cause of bloodshed on New Zealand streets today is the immigration program which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate to New Zealand in the first place, end quote. Now, it's that kind of talk that has flamed Islamophobia in Australia and beyond and seen an increase in far-right and ultra-nationalist groups in recent years. But despite the rise in hate crimes and increasing violence against religious minorities, including against her own fellow Jewish worshipers, Rabbi Gerson still holds on to hope for the future. And I would say what gives me hope is looking at the midterm elections, um, the diversity of who was elected was very moving, the number of women that were elected in a time where I feel like, you know, we are really seeing... Um, we see how much work there is to be done towards egalitarianism and towards, um, you know, dealing with the effects of misogyny and rape culture. I feel I was really moved by how many women were elected to public office, how many Jews were elected to public office, how many Muslims were elected to public office. We may not agree on all issues. We may not see eye to eye on everything, but I certainly think that the leadership of our country is more reflective now of, the, of our demographics. And that's tremendously encouraging for me. Thanks for your time, Jordy. Writing in the New Republic, author Patrick Strickland says that, quote, 
The increasingly international nature of rightist extremism requires an equally international anti-fascist response that addresses its root causes. Until that response comes, and so long as the people occupying the corridors of power from North America to Europe and beyond spread the same messages once thought to be confined to the dark crevices of the internet, we can expect more bloodshed targeting immigrants, worshippers, and everyone opposed to hate. The Harvard Religion Beat is brought to you by Harvard Divinity School. It's hosted and produced by me, Jonathan Beasley, and edited by Heather Latham. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you made it to the end, let me be the first to congratulate you. I'm giving you a tiny golf clap right now. We'd love to connect with you in other ways too, so if you don't already, please follow us on social and subscribe to our e-newsletter. You can find that info by clicking the link in the episode description or you're smart people. Just Google us. In addition, if you have yet to discover our other podcast series, Ministry of Ideas, please check it out. It's gotten rave reviews from The Guardian, BuzzFeed, and a host of other publishers. Until next time.